Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Steve Bergsman about his novel, The Death of Johnny Ace, published in 2012 by Dancing Traveler Publishing. This is the first time I've talked with an author about a book of fiction in this capacity, so I wasn't sure how to approach my interview with Steve. But then it hit me. This is historical fiction. The people, places, and things that Bergsman writes about in this book were mostly real. They happened, they lived, They played hot tunes. Bergsman writes of Johnny Ace's life in Memphis, his tenure in the Navy, his first public pop music performance in the Palace Theater, and his membership in the Beale Streeters, a band that included B.B. King and Bobby Blue Bland. Additionally, Bergsman details the important characters to Ace's story. Manager James Mattis, unscrupulous business magnate Don Roby, girlfriend Charlene Lewis, and musicians Willie May, Big Mama Thornton, Rufus Thomas, and Little Junior Parker. All of this set in the pre-civil rights South, where segregation ruled the day, but also where it was becoming more and more evident to anyone who cared to look that the R&B music of African Americans was on the verge of crossing over into the radios and record players of white teenagers across the country. Tragically, just as Johnny Ace's star was about to explode on the national scene, he died by his own hand. In a not uncommon move, Ace, in a fit of macho posturing, put his favorite Italian pistol to his own head, declared his invincibility, and pulled the trigger. Steve Bergsman lives in Mesa, Arizona, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Steve, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, and thank you for being on the show. Oh, no problem. This should be fun. Uh, I think it will be. So tell us first, Steve, uh, a little bit about your biography before we get into the book. Where are you from? How did you get to where you are, etc.? I'm a longtime journalist, uh, 30 years uh, as a journalist. Um, mostly known uh, as a business and real estate writer, and my first four books were about real estate. And then uh, in recent years, I branched off. I did a, a memoir, Social History of Levittown, New York, where I grew up. Uh, Levittown was the first important suburb uh, in modern modern times, you might say. First uh, uh, large-scale real estate development of that sort ever, and it was built for... Uh, the GIs coming back from World War II. Finished that book about two years ago and then uh, came back to Johnny Ace. Uh, uh, it's a book that I started a decade ago, uh, wrote it, put it in my closet, uh, took it out uh, about five years ago, worked on it again, put it back in my closet, and then took it out and realized I had a pretty good book going. So I uh, cleaned it up, finished it off, and... Uh, and the result was the death of Johnny Ace, which is historical fiction. It's based on uh, Johnny Ace, who was a real uh, and very popular rhythm and blues artist in in the early 50s. And uh, I, I could have gone with a, a biography, uh, and that would have been easy, but I, I felt that people really didn't know who Johnny Ace was, or if they did, they'd forgotten about him. I mean, he's so forgotten. He's somebody that should have been 
considered for, say, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but they don't even even think of of, of nominating him. Although in the years, say, from uh, 52 to 54, uh, he was the most popular uh, R&B artist in America, and he was a cult figure in urban black neighborhoods. He was, uh, to African-American teenagers, what James Dean was to white teenagers. That's how important he was. And when he died at his funeral in Memphis, there were 5,000 people who showed up for his funeral. That's how popular he was. And I was just reading some notes uh, recently that uh, in his heyday, uh, 52 to 54, he had eight straight hits, and he was the most uh, programmed artist, uh, according to Cashbox magazine. So that's how big he was and completely forgotten. And I thought, well, maybe the better way to go was to... Uh, write about him, but in, in uh, a novel format as opposed to uh, a biography format. I thought that would attract more readers. And there's always been that mystery of how he died. So it's this historical fiction slash mystery, you might say. Uh huh. Well, before we get too too much farther in, into the book, uh, and you already mentioned this, I just found it interesting. Um, the books you've written before. Uh, you know, opportunities and strategies for real estate investing, um, the art of raising capital and owning property. Uh, how did you make the leap from from uh, what? Why did you make the leap from real estate to uh, pop music, historical fiction? Well, uh, I've, I've been known uh, forever uh, as uh, one of the I'm uh, probably one of the best known writers who writes about real estate. And it was very easy for me to write those real estate books. And, in fact, uh, the first one, uh, Maverick Real Estate Investing, was uh, an Amazon bestseller. It was actually one time it was number uh, – was the 32nd best-selling book on Kindle. I, I was out selling, I don't know, uh, uh, all the popular writers. It was easy. That was easy for me, and and those books sold well. But there were some books that I wanted to write, and I know, and I've always been an amateur musicologist. And uh, early in my career, I wrote about uh, 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 popular musicians, and my focus was always on older musicians as opposed to uh, current musicians. So I, I had been writing about those and uh, those kind of performers in my early years knew the story of Johnny Ace, and, and I just kept it around, uh, that, that story. I always thought it was a fascinating story. And uh, finally, uh, I, I, I decided to do some books that I thought would be important to me, such as the uh, Growing Up Levittown book, and then very quickly, the Death of Johnny Ace book. Are you still writing real estate stuff? Uh, I'll probably... Uh, I. Actually, just this morning, I sent off a proposal to my uh, my agent for uh, another real estate book. It'd be the third Maverick real estate book. The first one was Maverick real estate investing. Then came Maverick real estate financing. And if this one goes, it'll be Maverick real estate residential. So these books are good, and and they make a lot of money for me. But uh, <laughs> but I like writing about uh, performers and. Uh, and I actually started writing on a, uh, a sequel, you might say, to the death of Johnny Ace. So I don't want to say what it is, but I've already started the next book of this genre. 
this historical fiction type genre. Great. So, so getting into the book, um, it is historical fiction, as you say. <laughs> what kind of uh, research did you do to, to, to dig up the dirt on Johnny Ace and, and his circle of people? When I, when I started the book uh, back uh, a little over 10 years ago, there wasn't much uh, Internet. <laughs> so I, I, I started accumulating uh, books at the time and, and research hard research and libraries and things like that that you don't do anymore uh, on uh, on the Times and on Johnny Ace. I did uh, some interviews. There were still some people around who were contemporaries of Johnny Ace. I interviewed B.B. King. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, a lot of work initially. Uh, you know, if I did that book to, this book today, there's a lot more about Johnny Ace. And indeed, there's uh, even a biography about Johnny Ace out there. And uh, I still don't. I still have never read the biography because I don't. I don't want anybody to come back and accuse me of saying, "Oh, you copied from the biography." So I've never read the book. I know there's a biography out there. Uh, all the, all my research was uh, original, and um, that's how that's how it all began. Johnny Ace over, you know, a lot of these other pre-rock and roll musicians that you might have picked. Why Johnny Ace? Were you saying, Matt? Yeah. Why? Why do you pick Johnny Ace over over other people you might have wrote about? Uh, for two reasons. First of all, as I mentioned, I think he's probably the most important and most forgotten. Uh, uh, performer of uh, starting in, in, in the rock era of the 1950s. He actually predated the rock era. Uh, he died in 54. You might say the rock era began in 56. Uh, uh, that's when rock and roll really started to appear. You had, you know, uh, 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 some teen movies that, that had a, had a, a uh, rock uh, rock and roll songs that came with it. You had Elvis Presley breaking out in 56. So 56 was sort of the key year. But uh, Johnny Ace, unfortunately, died in 54. And uh, his most important record, Pledging My Love, uh, really came out after his death. And that came out in 1955. That's the record that everybody knows because it, it crossed over into the white charts. It was a rare thing for a rhythm and blues record to cross over into the white charts or the popular music charts at that time. So, A, a he, he was a performer that people just had forgotten about, and B, there is that whole issue of how he died, and I'll, I'll just sketch it out for you. Allegedly, or the myth, or the great myth of Johnny Ace, was that uh, before a concert, a Christmas concert in 1954 at Houston Auditorium, uh, in his dressing room, he uh, allegedly was playing Russian roulette with a, a load, you know, in Russian roulette, you put one bullet in the chamber, you spin the barrel, and and you click the trigger, and if you win, you're still around. And uh, unfortunately, Johnny Ace lost. And uh, the myth is that he blew his brains out playing Russian roulette in his dressing room at this concert in Houston in 1954. So you had those two great things. He was forgotten, and there was this uh, great myth about him of how he died. 
So that's why I chose Johnny Ace. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell, so so uh, set the scene for us. It, it, the, the story takes place late 40s, early 50s, mostly Memphis, a little bit Houston, a little bit the Chitlin circuit. Uh, set the scene for us, please. Well, uh, you have to go back. Memphis was one of the great crucibles of, uh, of, of pre-pop pop music. All the all the great uh, performers who came out of the Mississippi Delta, uh, which was just south of, of of Memphis, they would migrate first to Memphis and play Beale Street. Beale Street was uh, a street of bars and and clubs, and and uh, it was it, it was probably one of the most happening places in America at the time for rhythm and blues. Uh, musicians. So you came out of the Delta, you first stopped before going to Chicago or New York, wherever you were going to go, you went to Memphis and that's where you played. And this was uh, Johnny Ace's hometown. He was uh, uh, Memphis raised and he he got to see all these great musicians coming up out of the Delta and um, started to play in, uh, in Memphis on Beale Street. So Memphis was a was perhaps one of the, the great great centers of music in the in the late 40s, early 1950s. I mean, this is where BB uh, King uh, started, and and BB King and and everybody knew each other. So BB King and Johnny Ace were friends, and uh, actually BB King helped Johnny Ace sort of get himself get get established in Memphis. But other you know other everybody else. Coming up through from the Delta also played there, and uh, other, other names there were like Rufus Thomas. He was a, a who became a pop star in the 60s, but he got his start in Memphis in the early 1950s. Junior Parker, uh, Johnny Ace played with uh, Big Mama Thornton, uh, and so all these all these great musicians were on Beale Street in the early 1950s. And this is the scene that Johnny Ace, uh, he was actually born Johnny Alexander, changed his name to Johnny Ace, and this is where he started out on, on in, in, in Beale Street. And uh, even today, though it's, it's 50 years past Beale Street and Memphis's prime, but if you ever wanted to go anywhere in the United States and see where the music started, you can visit uh, uh, Memphis, and this is better than Nashville, better than Cleveland with the Rock and Roll Museum, even better than New York. You can go there and see how all these these currents of music got started. I mean, Beale Street is still there. It's not what it was, but it's still there. I mean, Elvis's home is is in Memphis. Uh, Stax Record is, uh, you can still visit Stax Record in Memphis. You could still visit Sun Records, Sun Records, where Elvis and Roy Orbison and Johnny Cash and all those uh, first recorded is still there in Memphis. They're, they're museums now, but uh, and there's a great rock and soul museum in Memphis. So even today, you can go to Memphis and, and sort of get a sense of of how uh, uh, rock and roll sort of got its beginnings, and and a large part of that was Memphis, and that's where Johnny Ace was in the early 1950s. Going to clubs, going to uh, uh, figuring out what kind of music he wanted to make. So the the story starts with 
with, with Johnny Alexander getting out of the Navy right. and, and coming back to Memphis. And he starts, uh, one, he, he wears, he, he wears his, now I don't, you can, you're welcome to, you know, tell me what's fiction and what's fact, or we could just leave that up to, to the listeners and the readers. But he wears his, his Navy uniform, even though he's out of the Navy now, and he starts hanging out at the Palace Theater, right? Yeah, because Palace Theater, they used to have this uh, contest. You can go in and uh, 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 you'd uh, go in, and it was like amateur night or uh, what are the shows they have on now where you become the top musician or the right. All those shows, what do they call that? Uh, America's Got Talent, those kind of shows. Yeah, The Voice, all those. Yeah. But there was, uh, the Palace Theater had this amateur night, and the best musicians coming through would play there. And uh, in my book, in the book, uh, Johnny Ace, he'd go in and wear his uniform because he, 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 he stood out in his uniform. How many... How many African Americans were in the Navy in in the late 40s, early 50s? Not many, so he stood out. And then he uh, uh, played uh, in the amateur night, and uh, uh, he was a, a very good-looking guy. And uh, it was pretty obvious that when he played, and he was a, a piano player, uh, that uh, he connected, especially with the female audience, and uh, and. Uh, Women, they they just loved him. He had a very, uh, unlike other rhythm and blues artists at the time, who played a, a sort of this this hard country formed blues rhythm and blues. Uh, Johnny Ace was a um, piano player. He was, had had a, a soft voice, and he could really nail the, the ballad. This is. Uh, I, I call it pre-soul, the soul music that came up in the 60s, but it really sort of, Johnny Ace was pre-soul. He, he had these great rhythm and blue ballads that just connected with the female audience, and uh, uh, he, he was quickly became a very popular singer in, uh, on Beale Street. Yeah, and his songs, there's not a lot of, you know, jump to them. They're, they're, they're ballads, like you say, and He's on these 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 reviews and these tours with people like Big Mama Thornton and and whoever else. Um, I, I wonder how the audience re- reacted to his songs because it doesn't seem like they're songs that you would you know really jump and jive to. Now these were uh, you might say they were anti jump and jive. I mean he uh, he did some jump and jive, but uh, if you listen to those songs, they're not as powerful powerful as his ballads. And some of the ballads he you know he'd write himself. And uh, just his first hit, I'm trying to think, uh, was my song. And uh, I, I think it, it, his first record that he cut was a became a number one number one on the rhythm and blues chart at the time. And it was a strictly a ballad, and uh, and it was a song that connected with uh, teenagers, uh, uh, African American teenagers, but most importantly. It connected with the African American teenage girl, and, uh, and and this was his audience, and they loved him when he performed. And uh, you know, there was a, it was a, you, you played the clubs on Beale Street, and then maybe you played the Chitlin Circuit, uh, but there was a, a lot going on at the time. And one of the uh, the stories 
storylines that that in the death of Johnny Ace. Uh, so he recorded with uh, a local uh, a local company in in uh, Duke Records in in Memphis. But there was uh, uh, an impresario in Houston and uh, a guy named Don Roby who had uh, Peacock Records. And what's interesting about Don Roby, who's also absolutely forgotten now, but he was really the first great uh, African-American, uh, not just impresario, but the record producer. So even before Barry Gordy and Motown, which everybody thinks, oh, this is he was the first great African-American record producer, Barry Gordy and Motown, and it was and Motown was great. But you know, 15 years before Barry Gordy was this guy Don Roby, and uh, Don Roby, uh, he had clubs in New York. He was uh, an agent. He, he produced records. He had his own label. He started out with a uh, 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 recording artist, mostly gospel, spiritual, uh, very successful, and then uh, in really unique. He was so he was uh, so strong and so big that he actually acquired Duke Records, which was owned by uh, 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 a white producer. He, he acquired it, and it became Duke Peacock Records. And Don Roby became uh, the producer of uh, Johnny Ace. So there was a lot going on uh, in the early '50s in African American music and, and in the music business that people don't realize. So not, not only did you have a guy like Johnny Ace, but you had a guy like Don Roby, who uh, is also forgotten now. You make Don Roby out to be kind of a, a mobster, kind of you know kingpin kind of guy. Uh, how much of that is, is your fiction, and how much of that did you find in your research? Uh, uh, it's an interesting story. Don Roby was kind of a... Uh, uh, Mobsterish, let let me put it that way. In Houston, uh, and he had a, a bad reputation, and supposedly he uh, he had a uh, besides this great record business that he had, besides this music business and the club that he ran, which was the most popular club in Houston uh, at the time. Supposedly, he ran numbers and had prostitutions and uh, uh, a prostitution line, and he was uh, a, a tough guy. He was a tough dude in, in in the Houston in the Houston world of the early '50s. So a lot of it a lot of it is true. He he, he had a bad reputation. I think that's why they sort of overlook him now. Okay, okay, he did these great things in music, but he he had a shady reputation, so maybe we should just, like, leave him out of the Hall of Fame or something. And, and the the other important um, managerial-type person that Johnny Ace, Johnny Alexander, uh, is associated with is James Mattis, correct? He was the, the Duke Records guy? Yeah, he, he founded Duke Records. You no, know, people were uh, were creating all these record labels all the time in the early '50s. It was uh, the the record world was wide open, you might say. There were the big, still the big companies like CBS and uh, uh, I'm sorry, not CBS, RCA, and uh, <clears throat> and they they dominated 
the record industry, but, you know, uh, teenagers wanted other things, and uh, and these small record companies would, would uh, really just start up overnight, and occasionally they would uh, uh, do do good, do very good things, but... And and their their performers would become uh, uh, major stars, but only regionally because you know they had limited resources and they could only get their records out regionally. And uh, maybe if they were lucky, uh, uh, one of the big companies in New York or Los Angeles would would pick them up and uh, they license the record, and then uh, the performing artists would get a, a national reputation. But Mattis. Uh, he was associated with WDIA, which was the powerhouse uh, um, radio station in the one of the powerhouse radio stations in the Midwest. Now you got to remember that uh, this was uh, uh, um, the radio in uh, up until the '60s was all AM radio. It was only AM radio. There was no FM even, and. Um, in places like Memphis and Chicago, and there may have been a few others, they put these great towers out there and uh, broadcast. And if you were driving in your, depending on climactic conditions, you could be driving in your car in Atlanta, and you might be able to pick up uh, a bit of the Memphis station. So these uh, these stations had great outreach, and uh, this was uh, WDIA, one of the great radio stations of its time, which was owned by, uh, it had white ownership, but it it made the transformation to rhythm and blues in the early 1950s, and this was where a lot of uh, B.B. King and uh, uh, others, B.B. King actually worked at WDIA, and Johnny Ace a little bit uh, at WDIA, Rufus Thomas was a, a... a disc jockey WDIA, so it really reached the black audience uh, that was out there throughout the Midwest. So this is an important place, and this is where Mattis got his start, and he created Duke Records right there in 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 W uh, in the WDIA studios. James Mattis is is associated with WDIA. Yeah, he was. He uh, he worked at the station as well. Uh, he wasn't the owner, but I think uh, he was the manager of the station. And um, he, he got his start uh, elsewhere, in uh, perhaps in Alabama, and he was used to, he knew, he knew uh, the black musicians in, 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 the, in the Delta area, and uh, he knew, uh, and he, he worked with black musicians. There weren't a lot of... Uh, uh, radio personalities or radio managers who knew that market and James Mattis knew that market. So uh, he was perfect manager for WDIA. As you know, how did he, how did he find um, Johnny Alexander? Uh, well, B.B. King was, was one of the primary uh, disc jockeys there. B.B. King was trying to uh, make a name for himself as a performer but he was first known for for his work at uh, as a DJ at WDIA, and he used to. Uh, there's a, a a lot of mythology how he became BB King, and uh, he used to promote. You know, the DJs at the time would do jingles, 
they would uh, promote uh, uh, products live, and uh, that was all part of what they had to do. And uh, there was a product, I can't think of it at the moment, but if you broke it down, it became BB. And uh, some people say that's how BB King became BB King, <laughs> uh, because he picked up these BB from uh, the initial BB from this product that he was uh, promoting uh, on the radio. So he first became uh, well known in Memphis, besides as a stellar performer, but uh, in his gig as a, as a DJ on the radio. And I think uh, uh, after he left, because he had a, an early hit in the 1950s, I have to go back, could have been something like 3 O'Clock Blues or something like that, and uh, and uh, it, was, uh, it was actually a, a pretty big hit on the Rhythm and Blues chart, and then he, he gradually uh, decided he, this was his life. He, he, he wanted to be a performer and not a DJ, and uh, you got to remember <laughs> You know, if, if everybody has this vision of B.B. King, uh, a big guy, heavy, uh, uh, gets out there, plays his guitar. But, you know, in those days, in the early 50s, he was also in service. And he was, uh, if you ever see pictures of him in the early 1950s, B.B. King was a scrawny, scrawny fellow. So uh, uh, they were all hungry. You might say physically they were hungry, and uh, career-wise they were hungry. And... They all did what they could. Uh, Rufus Thomas, uh, another great performer, he, he was, uh, uh, you know, he he did the shows, the club shows, and then he became a DJ, and then he too became uh, a great performer. So everybody was trying to find their way in the music industry in one form or another in the early 1950s before they figured they can make they can make it as a as a singer. Sorry. B.B. King knows James Mattis through WDIA and introduces uh, Johnny Alexander to James Mattis. Right. There's a, uh, it's funny, if you remember back in the uh, 1960s, uh, there were these, uh, I think they were called like super groups or something like that. There was this name for uh, all these uh, major players like Eric Clapton, they get together, form a band like Cream and... Uh, uh, Blind Faith, and or, uh, and they were called uh, supergroups because they took all these the best performers and they perform and they create an album or two. But in in the early 1950s, BB King put a band together called Be- the Beale Streeters, and he was initially going to be part of that band, uh, but then he decided to go out on his own. And the Beale Streeters actually was kind of a supergroup at the time. They had a uh, uh, so he brought Johnny Ace in, 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 in and he brought uh, Bobby Bland in. Bobby Bland just died recently uh, in, and uh, a couple of other great performers, Roscoe Gordon, uh, Earl Forrest on the drums. And in a sense, Beale Street is, was uh, the first super group in, in, in America because they had all these uh, fabulous performers. And... Um, Beale Streeters went on the went out on the road uh, as uh, this great band, and then uh, uh, after going out on the road, they they, they sort of broke up. Johnny Ace became a a, a, a perform a, a great individual recording artist. 
Bobby Bland became a great individual performing artist. Even uh, Roscoe Gordon and Earl Forrest, they don't not remembered now, but they had a few good records in the, in the early 1950s as well, uh, going out on their own. So that's how that all got started. Important uh, part of the setting, of course, is that this happens in the South in pre-civil rights. So not only is there you know, physical segregation, uh, there's uh, music genre segregation. How, how do your characters in, in life, in real life and in fiction, how do they deal with, with the segregation? Well, I, I tried to bring that into this story. Now, Johnny Ace, in real life, in real life, he was, uh, uh, he was married and he had uh, uh, many girlfriends. And I decided to still distill all that into one character in the book. I gave him a girlfriend, completely fictional, but she was represented all the sort of women, you might say, in Johnny Ace's life at the time, and there were a lot of them. And uh, the, char- the the woman character, she uh, becomes the first. He meets her, and they talk about who they are. And she's the first uh, African American saleswoman at the local uh, department store. It's not even a department store on, on Beale Street. So, uh, and and she gets that job because the owner of the store recognized that so so many of the clientele, uh, his clientele, were now. Uh, African Americans, as opposed, you know, because the store was in downtown, so he needed to cater to his new clientele, and he hired uh, this woman. She became the, the first uh, African American saleswoman in this store. So I'm sort of introducing what was going on in black uh, black America and white America at the time. Uh, through the story and through through the characters, also the uh, uh, when the when Beale Street is go when they go on the road, they're they're playing the Chitlin Circuit, which was a, uh, a circuit uh, for black musicians throughout the South, and and this is from all over the South way up into Washington D.C. So uh, and there were never uh, uh, or very rarely there were places for, where black musicians can stay. They could not stay in the same motels or hotels or guest rooms where uh, white folk stayed. So they often stayed in homes, somebody's home. Somebody would put them up uh, uh, in their house uh, because there was no place else for, for these musicians to stay. So that's, that's, in the, uh, that's in the book as well. And uh, I always found it interesting uh, that there, so these musicians are playing the, the Chitlin circuit, but uh, Johnny Ace uh, in, in, in December uh, 1954, Christmas Christmas Day, uh, he's playing not the Chitlin circuit. Don Roby had such a power and influence uh, in Houston that he was able to book a, a concert at Houston Auditorium. Uh, a, a major venue at the time uh, for that was really just for the African American audience. So that concert where uh, Johnny Ace uh, died, you know, he was 
headlining with the Big Mama Thornton, another big act at the time, and a few other uh, 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 performers. Uh, Bobby Bland used to say, and I don't know if this is true, but Bobby Bland, uh, before he died, used to say he was he also performed at that concert. But I, I had no record of that, so I didn't include that. But it was definitely the, the performers were Big Mama Thornton and Johnny Ace and and Don Roby was act, was able to get Houston Auditorium on Christmas Day for a show for Houston's African American audience. That was a, a in my mind that was a great leap forward uh, for black uh, for black performance performers. Would you say at the time that was Houston a more segregated town than Memphis? It's it's hard to say. Uh, Houston was more wide open because it was a grow, growing city. Memphis, uh, like a lot of cities in, in the Midwest, began to peak population-wise in the 1950s, and a lot of African Americans realized the jobs were no longer in the South, and and starting you know going back to the 30s and 40s with Henry Ford. And uh, uh, in Detroit, and hiring uh, African Americans to work in his plants, there was a whole migration going up to the north and the mid and the northern cities in the Midwest for jobs. They, and they would stop in Memphis, but really, uh, in places like Memphis, the population really began to stabilize, and uh, there wasn't as much growth. Whereas Houston was really on its way to becoming. Uh, a major city in, in the U.S. and there was jobs for uh, for white America. There's jobs for uh, African Americans. <clears throat> so it was wide open, and uh, it was a wide open town. And that's probably why uh, guys like Don Roby could make a statement in, in in Houston, and and change could be made in a place like Houston, where it probably couldn't be made. In, in other big cities in the South at the time, like Birmingham or uh, or Atlanta, even. <clears throat> so uh, that 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 it really had to do with demographics and growth and and what was ha- happening in uh, uh, industrial America at the time. Uh, to belabor the the race relations point too much, but an interesting um, uh, interactions in your book are between. James Mattis, who's who's white from Memphis, and Don Roby, who's African American from Houston, and uh, but Don Roby is this African American man who's kind of bullying around a, a white man, which which probably wasn't too common at that time. Uh, no, uh, and it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't. I mean, it's, I mean, just the thought where a an uh, a company owned by an African uh, African American bought. A company owned by the white American—that's how—that's how, uh, that's how uh, uh, unusual and unique in the early 1950s uh, for that to happen. Don Roby Peacock bought Duke Records, which was Mattis's company. And, and it was a very small company that James Mattis had, but James Mattis had Johnny Ace, and uh, and that was important, and that's why uh, Don Roby bought his company, but. For a black, uh, for uh, 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 an African American entrepreneur to buy uh, a white company, that was a rare, rare thing. And I, and you know, and I had some other interactions in the book as well, where uh, where Johnny Ace and, and Mattis were driving through the South, 
and they get stopped. And, and why did they get stopped? They got stopped because it was a, 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 a black guy and a white guy in a car, and the police stopped them because that, that, that doesn't happen. That didn't happen too much. I mean, this was, you know, the 50, 1950s was a very, very segregated world in the South. So um, these were all uh, these changes that were going on. Would, 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 would uh, uh, you know? Don't forget the whole civil rights movement. Uh, you know, began in, in the fifties and and went on for another uh, fifteen years before you know the civil rights legislation of the Johnson administration. But all these changes were going on in the fifties, and even even Johnny Ace is a, a key. Thought in the back of his mind was, okay, uh, you know, I'm, I'm number one on the rhythm and blues charts, but gee, are any of my songs crossing over to the popular charts? That was always something uh, in the back of his mind because the charts were segregated, uh, very much segregated as well. So uh, I mean, and, and it really didn't happen for him to pledging my love, but by the time pledging my love crossed over into the popular charts, and getting as high as number 17, uh, Johnny Ace was dead. And an interesting uh, thought on that is, as you, as you know, these, these great rhythm and blues songs in the 19, early 1950s, they, the rhythm and blues singers who created these songs weren't, weren't appearing on the popular chart, but the big record companies would get some right, uh, get a white singer to sing these songs. So you always had somebody, some white singer singing uh, uh, songs that were originally uh, rhythm and blues songs. And the same thing happened for Pledging My Love. So uh, they, uh, Pledging My Love was a, was a, a huge hit, a huge uh, hit on the rhythm and blues show. And I, 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 I probably don't have these numbers right, but but probably for uh, a dozen weeks in a row, it was number one on the rhythm and blues charts. Uh, it was so strong that it actually created its own momentum to cross over the, to the popular charts. But by that time, uh, Teresa Brewer, a classic white teenage singer in the early 1950s, was singing, had her own version of Pledging My Love. And, uh, and the, the, the irony of it, her version also peaked at number 17, just as Johnny Ace's version featured number 17 on the popular charts. So you had uh, the white version of Pledging My Love competing against the real version of Pledging My Love on the, uh, on the popular charts. So uh, it, it, uh, it was a, a strange time uh, in American music uh, before, say, 1956, because in 1956, besides Elvis Presley, you, you started seeing guys like Chuck Berry and Little Richard, their songs appearing on the, uh, on the, the popular charts as well. So they were, they, they were breaking the color barrier. But these things really, except for guys that the smooth sounds like Nat King Cole. Nat King Cole from the late 40s, early 50s, he always appeared on the popular charts or, or say, the Mills Brothers or Louis Jordan uh, in the late 40s or early 50s, these guys had a, a jazzy sound or a smooth sound that was acceptable on the white charts, but the true rhythm and blues singers in the early 1950s, they never made it to the white charts, and their songs were covered 
by uh, by white America, and the, the the white American versions were then appeared on the on the on the popular charts at the time. Is that your work of fiction, Ace's uh, fascination with Nat King Cole, or do you have some evidence for it? Mm, that's a. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, in my research, I picked up a little bit of that, but not. It wasn't uh, uh, firsthand. Uh, some of the critics uh, or people writing about popular music at the time uh, related that the early Johnny A songs had a a, a lot of uh, uh, sort of sound qualities that that were somewhat similar to Nat King Cole. So uh, I, I put that in the book. So I don't know if that was true, but uh, the people, the historians sort of made that jump for me, and I just created that situation in the book because uh, I felt that if Johnny Ace was listening out there to everything that was out there, he would have known and he would have would have realized that's where he wanted to be because Nat King Cole appeared not just on on the Rhythm and Blues charts, but he appeared on the popular charts, and any performer, white or black, would have wanted to be in the same place as Nat King Cole. Most of your characters, including Johnny Ace, including Don Roby, including James Mattis, they're, they're, including Sam Phillips, who's not really too much in the story, but um, they're, they're really, as the, as the popular story of, of rock and roll history goes, they're really looking to find a way to, they're looking for crossover artists. Uh, yeah, that was the, uh, I mean, they, there was the, the, this great, I mean, all this great music was coming out uh, uh on out of Black America at the time, and but the world was segregated, and they and unless you started, and that's why Alan Freed was so important. Where he started to in, in, in Cleveland, he started to in the early 1950s, he started to play uh, these uh, African American uh, musicians on his station uh, in Cleveland. So he was bringing in these African-American musicians into a station. Then in the early 1950s, after Alan Freed, in big cities like Los Angeles and New York, you'd start to finally hear some of this music. Uh, some of it was rhythm and blues, and some of it was uh, doo-wop, uh, which was doo-wop was sort of an urban American uh, uh, version of, of, uh, of black music at the time. Very popular, and the white teenagers got... Got it, and the white teenagers in the early '50s got it. And they said, "My goodness, there's this great music out there. I want to hear it." So um, they, they, you know, they would listen to guys like Alan Freed. And Alan Freed, you know, he started to do these uh, big shows where he'd bring in like ten different performers. They each sing two, uh, one or two songs. The next one would come on. And uh, he would uh, integrate his show, so he would have the white performers and he would have the black performers. So all this kind of uh, revolution was going on. But uh, teenagers, especially uh, in the South and in urban America, they, they, they were beginning to hear these black musicians, and they wanted those records, uh, uh, the, the original. 
So, but it, it was tough. It was still tough for the performers to get that crossover, uh, that crossover action, and that's why it was important to guys like Johnny Ace to see if they were, you might say, bridging the gap. Where you know, were they selling to just uh, the black audience, or were they selling to the white audience as well? That that was important back then. So another uh, important theme in your book is, uh, well, it, it's brought up fairly late in the book, but there's this other setting in your book, of course, of a you-like character and the professor, uh, Professor Harkness. And at one point, uh, Professor, Professor Harkness says, uh, this is about the record industry. The story is about the record industry. And, and that goes to, to this, this theme in your book where Johnny Ace goes out to Houston and with, with James Madison. He signs this contract with Don Roby and he brings it back to Memphis and he's having beer with B.B. King and whoever else. And they're all telling him that it's a bad contract and things kind of start going south from there. Yeah. You know, the, the a lot of the record companies, even the big ones, but a lot of the small ones, they they didn't treat their uh, the performers well, and uh, this was part of the problem. Even uh, Don Roby, who was uh, who, who was black, he, he he didn't treat his performers any better than. The the, the, the the white labels treated their performers. Uh, Don Roby often hoisted his name uh, as co-writer on these songs because if you got co-writing credit, then you uh, you had you own the rights to the song unless you sold it off. And a lot of people just sold off their rights because they needed the money. But if you kept the rights to the song. Uh, as the author of the song, uh, then you got uh, you got royalties. The royalties came to you. So even if uh, so, you see on a lot of uh, Duke Peacock records, you'd see uh, X Y Z uh, and Don Roby as the writers of the song. Well, Don Roby didn't write any of the songs. He just plastered his name in there to get the royalties. And the other thing, uh, so and he also squeezed his performers. He didn't want his performers to make more money than him, so he he wrote lousy contracts for his performers. It's the same thing what the, the you know the white labels did as well. So um, and uh, and I wanted to bring that out in the book that you know you are you're here you are you are suddenly you're famous and everybody wants your records. And um, you you weren't getting any money for it, and it was no you know ten fifteen years later it was no different. Uh, a good friend of mine, who I think pe- might have appeared on your show, Peter Benjaminson, who wrote uh, the Mary Wells book, uh, the biography of Mary Wells. So here was Mary Wells uh, singing from Motown in the '60s. She was uh, had the first number one hit from Motown, uh, My Guy. And she was, uh, before the Supremes, uh, the biggest female star on, on the Motown label. But she had to leave Motown because she was uh, not making any money because Barry Gordy wrote lousy contracts for his performers. So for her to, to actually make some money, even though she had uh, this great number one hit, My Guy, and a number of other hits, 
and she toured with the Beatles, she had to leave Motown because uh, she had a, a crappy contract. And it was the same with Johnny Ace and Don Ropey. He had a crappy contract. And and I wanted to bring that out in, 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 the, in the story. And that sort of... Uh, that whole strife between Johnny Ace and, and Don Roby culminated, and this is what I, what I interpret to what really happened that night in the dressing room at Houston Auditorium, how Johnny Ace really came to uh, blowing his brains out that night. Uh, so that's, you know, this is my book. This is what I feel really happened even though my book is historical fiction, this is uh, what I think happened that night in the dressing room, and that uh, and, and sort of the mystery it gets solved. Uh, you might say, in my version, anyway. And um, in the room that night, with in your story, there's two two young female fans, and then there's. I think uh, I think James Mattis shows up, and then Don Roby comes busting in. Right? Is is there evidence that, that Don Roby was in the room? There, Don Roby was there. It was his show, and he was in the room some of the time. Now, I, I've never gotten, uh, and uh, and uh, maybe uh, somebody has done better research since I, I have, because there's more about Johnny Ace now out there than there there was when I started this book about. Uh, who was in the room at the time. But when I was doing the research on this, there was no clear answer to who exactly was in the room at that moment when the, when the, uh, when the, when Johnny Ace pulled the trigger. But I think Don, uh, my feeling is Don Roby definitely would have been there. And, and getting back again then to Johnny Ace um, and, Throughout your book, um, yeah, he has this uh, obsession with a specific pistol that he always carries, and it, it seems to give him, you know, a lot of confidence. And he's cocky. And there's a couple situations where he gets in in, uh, in into trouble, and he and he does this Russian roulette thing to to make the other guy back down. And that that's that's the story you're saying might have happened this one night. I mean, uh, you know, the Johnny Ace. He, he, he sort of predated all this uh, uh, where, where, where rock singers became famous and prima donnas and uh, full of themselves. So here's a young guy in his early 20s, and so, suddenly he's on top of the world, and he feels that, that much, nothing can touch him. He, he's the king, and he can do crazy things like play Russian roulette, and He's going to win because he's, he's, he's on top of the world. So he felt no fear. He, he, he was winning, and he, and, uh, he thought it, it could go on. <laughs> He'd just keep winning. And um, he just had no fear that you know, death was around the corner. Death was waiting for him. And you, know, you see you know, a lot of... Great musicians, they, they have no fear. They'll, they'll go out there and do drugs and, or, uh, or race their car at uh, crazy speeds and crash them like a la James Dean or do drugs and kill themselves, maybe like uh, uh, Janis Joplin. 
but Johnny Ace predated them all. You know, when you think of Janis Joplin or Jimi Hendrix or Jim Morrison or, you know, or just blowing themselves up, unfortunately, Johnny Ace got there first. It's clear that the gunshot wound was self-inflicted? Yes. Yeah, that that's clear. No, I, I should bring up, I'm sorry, uh, uh, but in the book Death of Johnny Ace, there's the death of Johnny, there's the Johnny Ace story, but I should tell readers that it's actually framed. Um, there's uh, a professor of music or, uh, or sociology, but he's written some books about music, and there's a journalist, and they meet and they talk, and uh, the journalist is going to write uh, uh, a piece for Rolling Stone about Johnny Ace, and they sort of frame the whole um, story of Johnny Ace. They sort of put it into context. So you have these two stories going on in my book, Johnny Ace story, the, you know, happening in real time, and then these two guys who are uh, sort of meeting and chatting and discussing uh, Johnny Ace and, and music, and they, and they frame the story. And, of course, the, the key in that is that the professor was actually at that concert. He was a young boy. It was his first concert. His family was from Houston. He goes to his first concert, and it's the concert where Johnny Ace kills himself. So I, I just want the readers to know that there's, like, two stories going on in the, in the death of Johnny Ace book. The professor is African American, and the writer is is white. Right, and, and they've known each other for for a long time, and they're friends, and uh, and they have this great uh, 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 relationship, and and they and they chat, and uh, it's actually I, I, I like the story of the two guys as well as the story of Johnny Ace. So I, I mentioned earlier that I was going to do a uh, a sequel. And Johnny Ace is on, and I and it's the same two characters, the journalist and the professor, meeting again, and but it's a story about a different performer. So uh, I carry those two characters. I'll carry those two characters into the next book. So as as the writer, I like them. Do you know them? Uh, people ask me. They sometimes people say, "Which one is you?" And uh, I say, "Well." Uh, uh, frankly, they're they're both me. They're both kind of two sides of my personality. One one is the journalist, and the other one is sort of the musicologist. So they're uh, they're both me, you might say. Well, it has great respect for for the professor. That's for sure. Uh, uh, you know, you, you you as a writer, you create these characters, and uh, I don't know if you can, as a writer, you can not like your characters, but I, I sort of like the characters, and uh, I mean. I love the Johnny Ace character. That's why I wrote about it. But you know, I had to had to had to find some way to put 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 the Johnny Ace tale into perspective. So I created these two guys, and and I thought uh, I thought it worked out well. So I had a lot of affection for these two guys I created. <laughs> well, fabulous. Um, I, I think we're about out of out of time now, Steve. Um, usually, the, the last question I ask is is what are you working on now? You've kind of told us that. Is, is there anything more you want to tell us about what you're working on now? Like I said, I'll probably go back and do 
uh, a, a real estate book that's not really of interest to the readers, but it'll probably be my next book. But I'm also working on uh, the sequel uh, to the death of Johnny Ace. It'll take me. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm an active journalist at the same time, so I'm working all the time. So it takes about. It'll probably take me about a year to sort of sketch out a rough draft of the next the next book. So probably not till uh, what is this, 2013. I probably won't get the, the rough draft done until about 2014 on the next book. Hopefully, maybe by the end of 2014, uh, I can clean it up and get it back into print. And hopefully people won't have forgotten about the death of Johnny Ace and, and the characters. So that's my hope. Uh, and in the meantime, we, we can read your next uh, and and go back into your real estate uh, <laughs> your, your real estate canon. That's right. But I, I just want to put a plug in for Johnny Ace. You know, he's not considered. Uh, I've never heard him considered for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I really think somebody should go back and say, Hey, whoever's making these decisions on who belongs in the in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, somebody needs to go back and look at Johnny Ace and say, Oh, this this is a singer that belongs there. So there's my my last pitch. Well, and I think that was part of your buddy Peter Benjamin's pitch too, with with his Mary Wells book. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know if you knew, but uh, I I had uh, befriended Mary Wells, and the years before her death, I I recorded her uh, interview. I was going to write a help her write an autobiography. So I recorded her uh, in, in interviews extensively, and uh, then Mary died, and I, n- I never did anything. And then Peter, who, w- who was writing the Mary Wells book, gives me a call out of the blue, and he says, I heard you had been working on uh, a Mary Wells book, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Do you have anything? And I'd forgotten. I still had all those tapes. So I gave them to Peter, uh, and I'm glad I did because he wrote a wonderful book about Mary Wells. And uh, he used all uh, and and the tapes. I mean, hours of tapes that he was able to use for his book. For his book, mentions he mentions that in the book. Now that's a, that's a great connection you've made that I didn't catch before. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Steve, for for being on the show. You know, Matt, it was wonderful. I really uh, thanks for taking the time, and uh, I love to talk about the book. So thank you very much for giving me this uh, this opportunity. You've been listening to a conversation with Steve Bergsman about his book, The Death of Johnny Ace, released by Dancing Traveler Publishing in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.